0: Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Joel Cherney. My guest today is Rebecca Weeks, author of the book History by HBO, Televising the American Past, published in 2022 by University Press of Kentucky. HBO has always been known for its original programming, including many series that are based in historical events and time periods. In her book, Rebecca discusses four HBO series, both for their historical underpinnings, as well as specific cinematic aspects of their production. We talk about her work, as well as how a New Zealander was able to watch HBO's content. I hope you find her details and views as interesting as I did. Welcome, Rebecca Weeks. Welcome, Rebecca.
1: Hi, Joel. Thanks for having me.
0: No problem. I am speaking with Rebecca Weeks, who is the author of the book History by HBO, televising the American past, from the University Press of Kentucky. Um, in, we are actually pretty far apart as far as time zones. Uh, Rebecca is in New Zealand, and I am in the eastern time zone in the United States, so we are 16 hours apart. It's already tomorrow there, I was going to ask her if anything happened that I need to know about in advance, but I use that joke all the time because I do have another friend who lives in um, New Zealand, and we figure out there's a magic hour from about 5 until 10 my time that we can actually text and and, be, and both be on awake. Anyway, um, so your book, History by HBO, actually came out of your doctoral dissertation, I'm yeah, I think I'm right on that. and Yes, yes. So uh, let's take some time getting to know you, and then we'll talk about the book. Um, you're currently teaching, or a lecturer, I'm not sure, I don't want to, I know the terminologies from universities can be different. Um, you're a Bachelor of Arts Design program at Media Design School in Auckland, New Zealand. So where? what led you, how did you get to that Place and um, what was your uh, degree work like?
1: Well, I'll start with how I got to Media Design School. So, Media Design School is what's called a a PTE in New Zealand, a private training establishment. So, it offers uh, bachelor's level uh, degrees and also there's a couple of uh, master's degrees, but it's not a university. Um, so when I would finished my, my PhD, like most people, I was looking for a job and I kind of pieced together uh, a number of contract jobs at Auckland University, at AUT, Auckland University of Technology, and also at um, Media Design School. And Media Design School was where I kind of really felt most at home and where I enjoyed working the most. and Basically, I just uh, stayed on as a contractor uh, until they would give me a full-time job. I just kind of didn't go uh, away. So, yeah, I now work as a lecturer in the Bachelor of Art and Design program. So I tend to be teaching more um, kind of film studies related components. Um, The students that I teach, they really want to kind of go on to work at uh, Industrial Light and Magic or Weta Digital, doing you know special effects, doing animation. Um, so a lot of their classes are practical lab classes where they're learning how to use those softwares. But one day a week they have theory classes, and those theory classes are with me. So we do a lot of um, film studies. We do a bit of film history, which is nice. So I get to work some history and uh, and also just you know research projects. So research is the same you know, no matter what discipline you're in basically. Um, and yeah, so that's how I ended up at, um, media design school. Thankfully I did have uh, a solid grounding in film studies from doing my, my master's and then my PhD, which was, you know, history and kind of film and TV.
0: So, uh, the degree was from your PhD is what was the exact, um, subject area or was it history or, and you were able to include the other?
1: Yeah. Well, my, the, the book is actually very much based on, um, my, my PhD. So it had a slightly different, uh, title. It was history by HBO rendering the American past in serial drama. So it was a bit more kind of long winded. Um, so really, you know, I did my PhD part-time for a while and then I focused on it um, full-time although I was always working. Uh, so I did that over about um, five years. And um, so I took a little bit of a break from it um, after I had finished my PhD because I was focusing on on work. Uh, and then I came back to it and started to rework and update it, uh, you know, to, to kind of turn it into a, uh, a book. But really, kind of, it is very similar to my PhD thesis. So,
0: from your accent, obviously, you are from New Zealand. Am I correct with that?
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah, Kiwi born and bred.
0: Well, that's good. It's sometimes difficult to find work in your home countries, let alone home cities. So, it's good that you were able to to stay there unless you were interested in getting away. But anyway, <laughs> uh, that's great. Um one of the things I wanted to talk about a little bit before we got farther into the book was HBO and its reach where you are in New Zealand. Uh, obviously, HBO has been around for many decades. It's not too far away from its 50th anniversary. Um, one of the things that I rem- that there's There's been some books. In fact, there's been a recent... Uh, oral history about HBO, which I found fascinating because I didn't know a lot of the early material. So uh, what is HBO's reach in New Zealand?
1: Uh, I mean, my first connection with HBO was watching The The Sopranos. Um, you know, back in the day, they showed The Sopranos. I think it was on Channel One uh, in New Zealand here. So it was on at like 9.30 at night. Uh, I remember watching it kind of with my uh, parents because I was I was reasonably young at at that stage um, I didn't really kind of get the significance of it at the time you know it was just something that you know my parents liked to watch so and it was on in the tv you know in the lounge so we only had one tv and that's what I had to watch if they wanted to watch it um I also remember the marketing campaign uh, very clearly for Deadwood for some reason, seeing a lot of posters up around town. Although at the time I didn't watch that. Um, We don't have HBO, uh, you know, the cable network in New Zealand. In New Zealand, we're a much smaller market, obviously. So we only have one, you know, what is the kind of equivalent uh, to your cable? We have Sky. Uh, And so they started showing. HBO shows on Sky, which is our cable. Um, so I think originally True Blood aired um, maybe on Sky. Um, n- even now, we don't actually have HBO Max in New Zealand. Um, most of the HBO shows and HBO Max shows now are licensed uh, to Sky, and Sky now has a separate streaming service called Neon. Um, so most of the Um, HBO shows are available now either on Sky uh, or through uh, Neon but we haven't got HBO um, Max yet but we do get most of the shows now. Back in the early 2000s you know New Zealand was always behind by about six months to a year uh, on most things uh, when it came to TV so things would come out in the States and you'd read about them, but you wouldn't actually be able to watch them, um, you know, until they they made it to uh, our network TV, which was often a, a very long time uh, uh, later.
0: Believe it or not. And it's true. I mean, we actually have it sometimes happening the other way. For example, when Downton Abbey was on, it always aired <laughs> in Great Britain months before it did in the united states and there were ways you could get to the episodes even if you were in the united states if you really wanted to watch yeah. ahead and there were a couple times i decided it wasn't worth the trouble i said i'll just wait till they show up but because uh, in the united states they always showed through our local public broadcasting system um as you know many other british and other european shows are other countries international shows so it does happen both ways um so it's good though because given that you had to pull this together through a slightly uh, more difficult method because you didn't have the access to everything I was before we uh, started talking I went through and looked at all the lists of all of HBO's um programming which Nowadays, I mean, when it first started, it was mostly just movies. Obviously, um, nowadays, sometimes you look at the television listings here in the in the United States for H for the main channel, you can go hours without there being a movie. It's always going to be many other series now. I mean, and I, I frankly believe that HBO is still the the gold star here, at least as far as streaming services and such. So, um, it's great that we have. Uh, enough that you were able to work with. Um, obviously the let's talk a little bit about what you were trying to do with the book and we can keep talking about the HBO part. You picked four different series from HBO and and part of your introduction is getting into the whole issue of is it still television now? Uh, <laughs> we don't pe- with people watching things so many different ways, those lines are really starting to get fluid. Um as you were doing your research or starting your doing your writing, um, how are we talking nowadays about what we are watching and how what what do we call it now?
1: Well, I mean I still very much call it TV. Um, but it's quite funny I I teach just a single class about um, TV where we look at you know very, very quickly TV's history and I always start the class with, you know, how would you guys define TV? And of course, most of the students are, you know, 18 or 19. And so it's kind of what they think of as TV is very different to what I think of as TV. And I don't know if most people would now call it, you know, streaming rather than TV. But to me, streaming is a part of, of TV. If I watch it on my, uh, you know, television in the living room it's tv if it's an episode rather than a movie it's it's television so to me you know tv has changed enormously just over my lifetime when i was little we had three tv channels you had one tv set in a remote You know, and when you think about movies, going to the movies, that hasn't changed. Yes, the content of movies has changed, but you still pay your money. You can still go and sit in a darkened theatre for two hours. Whereas how we experience TV has changed completely. We can now, you know, watch, you know, while we're stuck in traffic on the bus, we can watch, you know, some episodes um, of our favourite TV show. We can watch, you know, episode after episode. We don't have to wait till nine o'clock on a Tuesday night when, you know, it was so, so important that if it was your favorite TV show, you didn't book anything in that time and you were able to watch it. I mean, all these things, they sound laughable and, you know, young people tend to kind of laugh at this idea, but, you know, it really was appointment TV viewing you had to watch at a specific time if you missed it if you didn't have your tape in the tape recorder um, then you just had to try and catch up the following week on you know the little recap they did at the start so you know even though TV has changed you know so enormously to me the fundamentals are still there you know they are you know, they're not standalones, they are episodes in a series, whether it be a mini series or a, a long form serial, you know, of course, there's more flexibility now and in, in how long they are. It's not just a 23 or 22 minute sitcom and a 42 minute long, you know, drama. Now, because most of them don't have ads, there's far more flexibility in that as well. But Yeah, to me, TV has changed, but I would still definitely um, call it TV rather than than streaming, because streaming is a part of television, but it's not television itself.
0: Yeah, I would almost argue that, especially because of COVID, um, it's the movies that have changed more in that we went through a period, at least here, where movies were being released only through the streaming services because the theaters were all closed yeah. and while we're starting to see that change and the good thing is um and i think it's for the best because certain films are just never going to be seen unless you know it's one thing to have uh, the the latest blockbuster but There are still films that people may never see them unless they show up in the theaters because finding them on a streaming service or or you know might be difficult. So um, it's taking time, but that's starting to come back. So HBO, as I mentioned before, was only was the first satellite TV service that they eventually. uh, In in your introduction, has a small history in there about. Uh, how HBO developed and how they first started doing original programming. As I mentioned, most of what they had were uh, movies, Um, not first run, but reasonably new movies. Um, The idea that they were uncut, for example, was a big deal. They got into sports programming, including boxing and sports, and then they began pretty early on, I think, to start to develop their own programming Um, and that's where I think HBO started to become special Uh, because obviously other cable stations showed up at least here Showtime, all the other ones but HBO decided pretty early on that they were going to start off with original programming that they developed Um, what was the... do you remember? You mentioned the Sopranos, and of course, in your situation, because you couldn't, you know, you could, you don't. They didn't come out the same way as for you. So how um, first or last was not that was less important. Uh, but I remember that, uh, and Sopranos was early on. I mean, Sopranos came out in 1999, and really the only major series that came out before it was Oz. So, and that was in 97, so those were really the first two. I mean, I know there's a couple other earlier ones, but most of them didn't last very long. So, um, but to start with such a good one as The Sopranos was really spectacular. But what you wanted to do with the book w- w- is to look at those four, in this case, four series that had historical underpinnings, um, some took you know it was important what time period they came they took place in some had characters that were real and some that were uh, uh fictional and so on and so forth so let's talk a little bit you've got you had you came up with four different series and they were deadwood boardwalk empire
1: Trime, yeah
0: thank you and Trema and Band of Brothers. So each of them had, uh, you developed and looking at them saying, these were a series that HBO did that had a historical underpinning to them. What led you to those four and how many other ones did you look at at least and say, well, maybe I can look at this one instead?
1: Yeah, well, when it came to actually choosing the case studies, well, the first thing I did when I'd finished my master's and I decided I wanted to do my, my PhD, I was firstly thinking of a general topic and I'd looked at Spike Lee and the films of Spike Lee for my master's thesis. And I absolutely loved that topic. Um, But when I was looking for something new to look, look at, um, I just kept coming back to TV. Obviously the conversation about, you know, TV, the discourse around it had been changing since The Sopranos. So when I was looking at starting this project back in 2012, it wasn't new, Um, but I, I was definitely becoming more aware of it. Um, I think we were starting to get more on New Zealand TV kind of quicker. Um, So that's firstly how I became interested in TV Then I started to think about, well, what are the shows I'm going to write about? And at the time, you know, I was in the middle of watching Mad Men, probably it was up to about season three. And I loved Mad Men. It was an amazing show. I loved the way that it engaged with history. You know, the fact that it wasn't, you know, about a specific historical event, although they did weave in you know, events like the assassination of JFK and the assassination of Medgar Evers. But it was really about creating this time, this time period, this atmosphere of what it was like for, you know, women in in the 1960s, either in an office or as a housewife. Mm -hmm. Um, And there were lots of other shows, you know, as well that were coming out around that time. I remember watching, I think it was the AMC show, Hell on Wheels, which was, uh, you know, another Western about the railroad. And so there was lots of great stuff and I there was just kind of too much to choose from. And so because HBO has always been at the forefront, I thought, well, it makes methodological sense to really focus my, my case studies on HBO and it's not because there aren't fantastic shows to study on other networks, but I need to create some kind of parameters for myself. And I really just chose American history because that's where my own background uh, lies. I already had a foundation of, of knowledge. If I'd chosen to write on uh, Rome, The HBO series Rome, which I'm sure is a great show, I would have had to start from scratch because I know absolutely nothing uh, about ancient Rome. And so, you know, I'm very interested in American uh, history. So you always want to study something that you're interested in. Uh, I had that foundation of knowledge, not that I was an expert in any of these time periods. um, But that's how I ended up whittling kind of. The potential case studies down. There were other options, you know, the Pacific, I could have written about the Pacific, and I did intend to actually, Um, but, you know, what I had planned to do ended up taking a lot more space than I had initially thought, so I just kind of had to jettison um, talking about uh, the Pacific. John Adams, um, again, I could have talked about John Adams rather than Band of Brothers. It's a kind of a synthetic uh, history. It's a, uh, a mini series, another fantastic show, but not so much my time period, a little bit kind of before I'm really comfortable with um, as more of a 20th century uh, American historian. So at the end of the day, I really could have picked any shows, uh, any historical shows on HBO. Um, it's not that I was looking for the best or the worst case studies. I really just wanted to know how history could be done on TV, how TV, you know, um, has unique capabilities, how, you know, what are its limitations, What are it's kind of uh, strengths and weaknesses. So really I loved, all four shows that I ended up looking at I had seen you know them all already uh, or they were kind of already in the middle of their their run not all of them had finished so I mean that's that's basically how I came up with these four shows um American history kind of more modern American history if possible and um yeah, so it's not that I chose not to do The Pacific because it wasn't as good of a, uh, a case study. It's just I was more familiar with Band of Brothers, and I wrote about that first before I realized I'd, I'd run out of space.
0: <laughs> yeah, I can think another one of the ones that I saw very early on and is probably the most quote-unquote historical of all of the HBO material besides John Adams, which takes a lot of license with the original material, is From the Earth to the Moon, which, of Mm. course, was Tom Hanks, which then led eventually to Band of Brothers in a way. But that's one where it was meant to be as realistic as possible. And uh, some of the other ones that we've seen more recently, like Chernobyl, I mean, they still continue to come out with these very interesting looks at events that sometimes are far enough back that it suddenly renews interest in them. Um, Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, Chernobyl was amazing and, you know, it wasn't American history, but I kind of wish it had been um, out, although it would have thrown out my case studies. But, yeah, uh, it just goes to show that HBA was still making um, amazing historical t- TV shows.
0: One of the big deals here in the in the States was when um, Watchmen came out, the, 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 mm. the TV version that opened with the Tulsa Race Riot, or Tulsa Riots, not Riots, Massacre of 19, 1921, which many people didn't even know about so it still makes a difference what hbo does the other thing you did though was you wanted to make sure that you looked at each each of the four in different ways you didn't want to just present uh you know the background of the of the four alone without trying to look at each from a film focus what were uh, so as we start to talk in more detail uh Let's look at them one by one, and as as we talk about that, if you could explain what in each case you were trying to get a better uh, view of, and you know, on the film side. And so, of course, the first one is Deadwood, and it's probably one of the better examples of how HBO is still TV, in that it was uh, the main person in in involved in Deadwood is David Milch, who was known for TV. I mean, he had uh, worked. Was the creator of um, NYPD Blue here in the States And also worked on Hill Street Blues before that So obviously he was a television person already And in your description, it first off, is the idea He really wasn't looking at a Western at first But it came to that What point of view did you, or did you want to make about Deadwood As far as its, in this case, uh, its visual aspect?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, again, it kind of goes back to when I was planning this out and kind of starting the project, um, you know, trying to figure out, you know, I initially decided, okay, I'll focus, you know, one TV show per chapter. And I can't look at everything to do with that TV show because, you know, there's 36, you know, episodes, say, of, of. Um, Deadwood. There's just way too much. You couldn't talk about everything. You have to kind of find a lens through which to um, examine it. And of course, because I was looking at how you know history is done on TV, I wanted to look at those aspects that make um, you know history on TV unique. So the fact that we you know we see and hear the the history that it generates that uh, look and feel of the past. And so, you know, there were really some chapters that lent themselves towards certain, um, you know, focus. So I always knew that I wanted to look at um, character for um, uh, Boardwalk Empire just because they were such fantastic case studies and such clear lines between all the different um, characters um, I knew that I wanted to look at sound um, for band of brothers because that's one thing that really gets to me every time I watch it you know especially in surround sound, And so once I figured out, you know, the elements of film form that I was going to be looking at, that I was going to be looking at character, at narrative, at mise-en-scene and sound, well, that left a couple of options. And so I just ended up choosing um, mise-en-scene for uh, the Deadwood chapter. Again, the idea is that these aren't, you know, special examples of it, um, but really, you know, we start to see the work that it does, um, you know, that the production design, the costume, um, everything that it adds to the history in Deadwood. And if that's true for Deadwood, then it's probably true for any other um, historical um, series that we look at. I really loved writing the chapter on on Deadwood because I'm really in awe of what um, the production designers and the costume designers do the amount of work, the amount of research, uh, that they put in is absolutely phenomenal. And I think, you know, a lot of times it, it's so good, you don't notice it. And, um, that's as an ordinary viewer. And then quite often in, you know, the scholarship of history on film, it just gets critiqued and, uh, you know, it's this kind of veneer of the past that's hiding all the kind of the terrible history that's that's hiding um, beneath. But what I found really was that, um, you know, it's all part of of the history and of creating, um, you know, a historical interpretation. It really does add so much to the history um You know, not just the main storylines and what the characters say, but how they use the space, you know, the way that um, the gym saloon um, functions as this kind of all-purpose kind of community centre. And that's really how, you know, saloons were used. Um, And, yeah, so it was just, I really wanted to drill down into what exactly the production design and the costume design in particular um you know how they were designed and what they added to the history that we see on screen
0: of course three of the four are what i would consider to be period dramas um tremay is more up to date in that it mm-hmm. focused post or at katrina but the other three had their as we say and and of course uh, as you as we'll see with uh, Boardwalk Empire not only was it character driven, but of course the uh, the production design and the fashion, quite frankly, the costumes were unbelievable. and of course with Band of Brothers, you still had issues where you had to make sure um, on those kind of things. but Deadwood, any Western, especially in more recent times, uh, it's one of those format forms, uh, one of those genres that, in film, went through a period of t- most of the time where it was less realistic. And of course, the idea behind Deadwood was to try to make it more realistic to the time period. When did uh, what period of time did Deadwood take place in?
1: Uh, the eighteen seventies.
0: So it was post-Civil War, which is where most, yeah. um, most Westerns between that period till about early 1900s. Um, uh, was that a series of, of the four? Well, let's skip that question. It's not important to this moment. Um, as you continue to watch it originally, uh, did the things like what it looked like and how the, how it was constructed how images were constructed, did that stand out right away to you?
1: Um, Well, I'd watched Deadwood before I, you know, chose it. And when I watched it just as a viewer, not looking at at it with a kind of a critical hat on or as a historian, um, you know, the thing that always jumps out to you about Deadwood is is the language, is what everyone wants to talk about um, with Deadwood and that's yeah, it was a running joke wanna... over
0: here as to how many four-letter words were going to be in each episode. So.
1: <laughs> yeah, when you when you watch it really close together, you your vocabulary becomes um, much more <laughs> less kid friendly because it really rubs off on you. But just the, the beauty of it as well, it's you know, it's profanity, it's Shakespeare, it's kind of all wrapped into one. But no, when I initially watched it, um you know, I I didn't notice it. Uh, And as I say, kind of choosing Deadwood, you know, to focus on the mise en it wasn't because I had particularly noticed um, it. As you pointed out, you know, the production design and the costumes were impeccable in, um, you know, Boardwalk Empire. And I could have equally talked about mise Sen for that show as well. But it's when you do start to look um, that you notice that it's not just making it look pretty in the background. There's history in the sets. There's history in the costumes that adds to, you know, the overall historical interpretation and really does a lot of 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 work. Um, and I think the the people, the departments, the department heads that um, you know work in those areas, um, they contribute a huge amount. Um, to the history that we see on screen. And I don't think we always acknowledge that. And I think it's such a huge part of it. It's not just about, you know, the look and feel of the past. That actually does really matter. And it has value and it uh, has weight and it has, um, you know, it, it is history, what they create. The way that it's captured on camera, it does become uh, history.
0: So then um, you said that Boardwalk Empire, you were particularly looking at the characters, you know, character development and the characters themselves. Um, in some ways, even though they're not created or involved with the same people, Boardwalk Empire is almost a prequel to Sopranos in that they take both take place in the New Jersey area, but much different time periods, but they both are involved with gangsters uh for lack of a better way of looking at it um they're not like i said before they're not related in any way uh, as far as that's concerned except steve buscemi was in both of them Uh, (laughs) so dead there's a few
1: people actually that pop up in both. yeah
0: so boardwalk empire actually takes place during prohibition um some of the folks that are in some of the characters are real based on real people some of them are Say have the same names. Some have slightly different names, and then of course there are um, people who are total uh, new—you know, new new characters that weren't really real. Um, How is so? Obviously, what aspect of character development jumped out right away that made you decide that this was the good way of looking at Boardwalk Empire?
1: Yeah, well, just going back to what you said before about um, the kind of relationship to the Sopranos. I remember, you know, reading somewhere in an interview with the showrunner Terence Winter that HBO just gave him, you know, um, a book and basically said, find a TV show and here it was a history of Atlantic City. All about its kind of criminal underbelly. And he kind of knew he couldn't do anything too modern because it would be way too close um, to the sopranos, which again, just kind of highlights, you know one of the great things about HBO is that they give their creators such um, freedom. But the second part of uh, you know what you were saying, I always knew I wanted to do Boardwalk Empire just because the different character types were so clear and you know nicely laid out. Um, you know, there are real characters in Deadwood, for example, Seth Bullock, um, Al Waringen. Um, these were real historical figures. Um, people like Alma Garrett, she was an invented character. But it was a lot more muddy almost with the characterization in, in Deadwood. Obviously really engaging characters, but elsewhere Warringin didn't follow the trajectory of um, the real elsewhere engine. He had a very different life. And so the boundaries between kind of what was invented, what was you know, following the historical record, it was a bit harder to kind of pass out. Whereas with Boardwalk Empire, they seem to have these very three clear character types. So you have the real historical figures, Lucky Luciano, Al Capone, and really the trajectories of their careers aren't changed. Yeah, some of the little facts are changed. Um, You know, some of the dates are moved around. They might interact with people that they didn't know. But really kind of all the key beats of their history are there. And, uh, you know, Terence Winter said he wasn't going to change that. So that's one type. Then you have the completely invented characters, uh, people like Jimmy Darmody, um, Mrs. Schroeder, um, you know, that there's a lot of historical work that goes into them, but they're not based on any one person. And then between those two, you have the kind of based on or inspired by historical figures. So this is, uh, you know, Nucky Thompson, who was based on Nucky uh, Johnson. And so, you know, they were very clear by changing the names, even though, you know, the similar names did can create a little bit of confusion. But by changing the name um, from Nucky Johnson to Nucky Thompson, they were saying this guy's life is, this character is inspired by this historical figure, but we're not beholden to the facts of that historical figure, unlike Al Capone, where we have to stick to, you know, what happened to Al Capone. We can take this guy wherever we like, but we can steal what we want from him as well because he was such a um, an unusual figure. He had such a rich and colorful life. You know, we're going to acknowledge that it's based on him because we want to steal from him quite liberally, but we're not beholden uh, to his actual history. So that's what I really loved about Boardwalk Empire. It gave me a chance to discuss, you know, all these different um, possibilities uh, when it comes to creating historical characters. You know, what are the strengths of, you know, using a real historical figure like Al Capone? What are the strengths of, you know, having a based on or inspired by what are the strengths of a completely invented character how do the three of them work together what kind of impact do they have on one another and how viewers might understand them uh, in the narrative
0: and like we've already said all of the you've as you've pointed out virtually any of these could have been reviewed different ways but it sounds like uh, as you pointed out, this was, um, it seemed to my, the most logical of the four. And I think that makes a lot of sense because um, Band of Brothers being a documentary, I mean, not documentary, a, se- a, a, a miniseries as opposed to the other three, it was only going to be a certain number of episodes. And so it makes sense that you would have uh, sort of looked at it a different way. So,
1: Yeah, and um, Band of Brothers, of course, it, it only really has real historical figures. Um, so it didn't, It of all the TV shows, that that really didn't make sense to do kind of character for that one. Um, True was quite interesting in regards to characters because you had real New Orleans natives actually playing themselves. Uh, they weren't the main characters, but they'd pop up um, quite a lot, musicians and politicians. Uh, and then a lot of the the main characters on the show were not inspired by any one person, the odd one was, um, but they were really kind of a mixture of, of drawing upon uh, a lot of different people's stories in a particular industry. So, you know, Jeanette as the chef, you know, pulling together a lot of um, experiences from people who were in a similar situation to her uh, after uh, Hurricane uh, Katrina.
0: And so let's, let's, let's move on to that, um, partly because, you um me is the of the four it's obviously the most current and in many ways the the least quote unquote historical in that it was going it was made while you know let's be honest even now years later people there are still dealing with the aftermath of Katrina and that some of the things that may never uh, get completely fixed so to speak or it may never change completely but one of the things that that, that uh, Treme has going for it in a way is that it wasn't the first thing HBO had related to Katrina. Yeah. Um, the most obvious example being Spike Lee's um, two-part. It ended up being two parts, but I mean it's basically one film um, about the uh doc in this case documentary about katrina
1: yeah so i mean to be honest again going back to the the start of the project i'd initially planned on not just looking at um tv series um i was going to look at hbo documentaries uh, and i was also going to look at hbo uh, telefilms as well but you know i very soon realized it was just way way too much um I had chosen documentaries in part so I could look at um, Spike Lee's When the Levees Broke. Um, And then of course he did um, If God Is Willing and Creek Don't Rise, which was the kind of follow-up documentary. Um, Just because I loved looking at him so much in my master's thesis, I didn't really want to let him go. Um, But I mean, the kind of the recent nature of um, Hurricane Katrina and the fact that it was kind of being made in the midst of, you know, the ongoing cleanup, I think it really gave, um, you know, the makers a chance to contribute uh, to the history. And I I do kind of make that argument in the chapter when, um, you know, they really focus, for example, in season three on uh, you know, the NOAA project, the New Orleans home ownership, you know, I can't remember the the full acronym, unfortunately, but, you know, there'd been a lot written about the road home program and really they delve into this much more obscure kind of lesser known, you know, um, you know, housing scheme and how it was, you know, came into trouble and kind of what happened and, you know, nothing else had really been written on it. You know, Treme was one of the first, um, you know, texts, you know, if we can, including films and TV shows and documentaries to really kind of explore this aspect um, of the cleanup. And of course, you know, David Simon, um, coming from his journalism background, you know, for him getting the story right, yeah, again, maybe kind of fudging some details here and there, uh, you know, when it was appropriate, but really remaining true, um, you know, to the facts, doing the research um, was so important. And I think um, they really have contributed to the larger kind of scholarship on you know, the cleanup in New Orleans. And so I think that's why it, it is really valuable as a, as a work of history.
0: And of course, um, yeah, the documentary, and the levee's broken, by the way, it was four parts, not two, I messed that up. Uh, that was a documentary. It was meant to be, to present, and it really wasn't even a historical documentary in that they were already starting their filming only a few months after Katrina hit. And the second one, in a way, because it sort of looks back after five years, but it was definitely a current event documentary more so, where um, the series was able to uh, play more into it. Of course, what is interesting about Treme is that it's one of the four, it's the only one that is, features, prominently features African Americans, and where HBO, a lot of their. Um, series tend to not be you know they're, they're doing better with it now obviously but at the time even there was a uh, more need for um being more diverse in their in their work and Treme definitely worked out for that
1: yeah well I guess you know David Simon's um earlier shows for HBO so The Wire and I think The Corner was also for HBO again you know, really have a strong uh, African American uh, cast. It, I mean, that's actually something that I really appreciate Treme for as well is the variety of of female characters as well. Um, you know, uh, there's not many female characters at all in Band of Brothers, and there are there are fantastic female characters in um, Boardwalk Empire with Mrs. Schroeder and definitely in Deadwood with, you know, Trixie and Alma and Jane uh, and Joni. But really, I feel like Treme, it really is more of a, a, an accurate, realistic kind of slice of life and the different uh, kind of cultures and ethnicities and ages and, um, you know, and the, again, you know, the gender representation, you've got, you know, Tony, uh, Burnett, who's the lawyer, um, you have Jeanette, who's the chef, you have LaDonna, who owns the bar. Um, uh, you know, there are all these really kind of, really well fleshed out female characters who are difficult and complex, just like male characters often get to be. But, you know, we definitely see it more with female characters now. But I like in Treme that they're not just. Sexual objects, um, and they're very much kind of their own independent, equally uh, important characters. Because, I mean, if you nut it down, Deadwood, Seth Bullock, Elsewhere Engine are really kind of our kind of two leads in, in that. And so with Trime, it's much more of an equal kind of ensemble. And that's what I really loved about Trime you have to work because there are so many characters because, you know, it does cast such a wide net. You really have to be paying attention again, just like The Wire um, or any other David Simon show. Um, But that's what makes it kind of so uh, engaging is the fact that, you know, it's, it's so vast and so varied in the stories that it tells.
0: And that, of course, brings it back to HBO because that's sort of expectation with HBO. Anything that HBO original programming of any sort is the expectation is it's not necessarily going to be easy all the time, that yeah. it's meant to be rewatched, even. I mean, it's back in the day, you would never think of rewatching episodes of a TV show, and even now it's more for nostalgia or comedies and such. But nowadays, uh, just about every television show, regular television show out of the states, is going to have a more serial nature. Even if it's a normal broadcast show, there's only a few that I can think of that tend to just stick to individual shows now. And then, of course, the last of the four Band of Brothers, as I said before, it's the only one that's actually a miniseries. The arrests were all continuing series. Um, obviously, it's it's I would. Tend to well Treme too, but I mean, Band of Brothers also is based on historical record. Um, it's based on a book, so that makes it a little more different than the other ones. Um, what and you've decided to look at Band of Brothers for sound as that part of 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 film. Um, what made you decide Band of Brothers was the best one of the ones that were more historical in nature? Than the other ones?
1: Um well, I ended up just choosing Band of Brothers for sound just because I think war as a genre, the soundtrack does really um stand out. I had watched the miniseries countless times before, you know, starting this project. I'd read um Stephen Ambrose Band of Brothers. I'd read a bunch of the the memoirs that um, you know the men of Easy Company published after the success of uh, the TV show so I was very very this was kind of the history that I was most familiar with and so in a way I wanted to really push myself as well by looking at sound because it is such an integral part but it's something that we don't really pay attention to again you know as with um, production design and costume design, if it's done really well, you don't notice it, but it doesn't mean that it's not important. And, you know, with war, again, if you're watching with surround sound, you know, the bullets pinging around you, the explosions kind of, you know, a um, you know, mortar taking off in the front speakers and then exploding in the back, it is really kind of um, engrossing. And I really wanted to explore, um, the possibilities of the soundtrack and, you know, the soundtrack was something that I hadn't really kind of thought about before. I hadn't done any research into kind of soundtracks and what they contribute and how they're constructed. So this was all quite new to me when I came, um, to write the chapter. Um, but as I say, I mean, I could have looked at um, sound in Treme. Obviously, music is really important in Treme. You know, the sound effects still really important in Treme. The fact that they have, you know, helicopter, the sound of helicopters in the background a lot in those early days to kind of, because there were, there were constantly helicopters in the air. And so they wanted to recreate the feel of what it was like by having these helicopter sounds. I could have looked at any of them, um, but I just so happened to to really wanted to look at, um, you know, a war scenario uh, in regards to sound just because, you know, a lot has been written on music already and how music is used in film to a lesser extent how it is used in historical film. Um, but sound effects themselves were what I was really interested in and what tends to be um, overlooked in a lot of of the scholarship. And, of course, with war, you've got um, so many sound effects, um, you know, in terms of vehicles and weaponry and, and all that kind of um, jazz.
0: And as I say, the the most interesting to me is the history part of it in that, They definitely took effort, made a lot of effort to make sure they tried to stay as reasonably historical with their um, production as they could and still make it dramatic. You have to, you know, that sometimes comes into it. But uh, the fact that it was a miniseries probably helped a lot with that. If they tried to make it any kind of single feature film, I don't think it would be possible.
1: Yeah, I mean, they they took the... um work really seriously and you know they sourced all of the individual weapons all of the vehicles you know the tanks the jeeps you know finding kind of working um you know examples that they could record and they did end up you know adding to those sounds and kind of I guess boosting or emphasizing them because that's what audiences are used to they used to things sounding a particular way Um, but for the sound team you know from what I picked up it was very important that they had um, you know the kind of the base historical sounds and not just you know firing a a weapon but the sound of like loading that weapon of the shell ejecting from that weapon it was every kind of sound associated uh, you know with the weaponry not just the the actual fire uh, firing itself Um, so yeah the the history was very important to them and I love the fact that um, you know they gave I think it was the Ken Burns series um, about World War II access to their sound library um, you know so that documentary could could use all of those sounds afterwards because clearly it's a incredible amount of work that they had done creating this repository of 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 world war two sounds essentially
0: so obviously as you pointed out you picked four partly because you had to you know there was a limit to how much you could do so uh, you had to uh, examine in particular um I'm not even going to ask you if there's any specific ones you wished you had done instead, because that's not a fair question. You did the ones that you did, um, and it, as you pointed out, there was a limit to how long the book could be, so <laughs> you had to pick the ones that fit within what you wanted to do and 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 um, and do it accordingly. Um, I would say, do you feel like there's more that you could be writing, that you could possibly be doing in the future related to this, or is it one of those things where you felt, okay, this was my dissertation that I rebuilt for a book, and now it's time to move on to other parts of research and writing?
1: No, I... I'm still fully in love with this, um, subject and I kind of hint at where I'm going towards the end of, um, the book and the conclusion when I bring up, um, the man in the high castle and, uh, just, just very, very briefly. And I'm actually writing a chapter, uh, for an edited collection on the men in the high cha- uh, men in the high castle, um, I guess I'm kind of starting to segue more towards more experimental uh, televisual histories. Um, So with The Man in the High Castle, you know, I find it really fascinating the fact that it's a a sci-fi. Of course, it's based on Philip K. Dick's um, classic novel, but I feel like it still does really great historical work. And because of the fact that it's so clearly... fiction it's a sci-fi we've got this kind of very 1950s even though it's set in 1962 this 1950s americana alongside you know nazi you know iconography it's really jarring to the audience you know when they're watching and so you know that it's not real you're never going to kind of get kind of caught in that trap of thinking this is the past this is the way that it happens that it happened in the past because it's so overtly, you know, a construction and an invention, but it's still weaving in, you know, a lot of historical truths about uh, Nazi Germany and their ideology and even, you know, about 1950s America and it's, you know, poses a lot of interesting counterfactuals, you know, the neutral zone, for example, you know, what would have happened if, you know, uh, Roosevelt had been assassinated? If the New Deal had never happened? What if, you know, the United States wasn't the kind of preeminent industrial power after World War II? So it's doing a lot of interesting things with history uh, in more unorthodox and experimental ways um, than the shows that I've looked at. Um, I think Lovecraft Country also hbo um it's a sci-fi it's a horror um you know it's really kind of um freaky in parts and gross in parts um in a great way uh but the it history... also features
0: it also features the uh tulsa massacre as in one of the in part of it so it's the second hbo series in yeah. a short period of time to do so
1: yeah, so together with Watchmen, I think it created a lot of awareness in the public sphere, um, you know, and the way that both of those shows deal with history is, again, very unorthodox and unconventional, but it doesn't mean that the history that's there is any less valid. And in a way, you can argue that it's more valid because the way that it's it's being presented is alerting the audience to its fabricated nature. I mean, that's why many... Uh, you know, academics aren't fans of history on screen, is because they think that the audience will think this is exactly what happened. Um, but audiences aren't passive; they're not just going to accept things. But I like the way that a lot of the TV shows at the moment are really kind of playing with with fiction and history in very kind of um, overt um, and interesting in ways. So that's kind of the direction that I'm leaning in kind of at the moment
0: well um it's great that we were able to um cover the book in such detail we'll be honest and say we had some technical difficulties beforehand (laughs) but we 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 pushed on because my attitude was we were said we were going to do this and we did so that's great um i really appreciate your time i hope that things are going reasonably well in new zealand Um, as far as everything is concerned. Sounds like you're still doing a lot of uh, remote or are you back in classrooms pretty regularly?
1: No, we're pretty much back in classrooms now, although, you know, we do just in general have kind of some students that decide to be fully online now for whatever reason. They're not in the country or they're not in Auckland, and we've kind of opened up our teaching space um, for a mixture of Online and face to face students at the moment. But thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for giving me a chance to talk about my book. And thank you so much for being patient while I worked out the, <laughs> my technical difficulties.
0: Well, thank you. We we're talking with Rebecca Weeks about her book, uh, History by HBO, Televising the American Past. I really appreciate your time and continued good luck with your continued writing.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much, Joel.
0: I hope you enjoyed my talk with Rebecca Weeks. HBO continues to be at the forefront of great programming, and Rebecca's book should help you enjoy them even more. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network.